You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday the 28th of May. Anne? Ooh. And hello to Larry and Larissa, who I hope are busily listening right now. <laughs> uh, Larry and Larissa listeners, our two listeners. Do you reckon we've got more than two listeners? <laughs> you know, we haven't heard of any others other than Larry and Larissa. We're being optimistic, aren't we, that we've got two listeners? We all live in hope. <laughs> so today I thought we would take a leaf out of the MMT playbook and look at some institutional practice, by which we mean looking at what some of these government departments do particularly the RBA, which is our central bank. Chloe Bruce from Network 10. Could you please explain in the simplest terms, perhaps keeping in mind your audience outside of this room, when the RBA decides to purchase government bonds as it's doing, where does the RBA get that money from? Is it simply a matter of printing new money? How does it work? Well, it's not... (laughs) It's not printing money. People um, think of it as printing money because once upon a time if the central bank bought an asset, it might uh, pay for that asset by giving you um, notes, you know, bank notes. So you'd have to print... We'd have, I'd have to run my printing process to do it. Uh, we don't operate that way anymore, obviously, because we have a, live in an electronic world. Uh, when we buy a bond from a bank, the way we pay for that is credit the bank's account at the Reserve Bank. We can create money electronically, and that's what we do these days. Thank you. The central bank is the only one who can do that. That's the unique feature of a central bank, and um, that's why you want... This is my final point here. That's why you want a lot of governance over the process of doing that. You wouldn't want, um, you wouldn't want everyone to be able to do this, would you? Just, so you've got a governance, you've got kind of strong board with a mandate, legal responsibilities, and we take it incredibly seriously, and, you know... It's, we're laughing now, but um, it's not something we take serious, uh, take um, lightly. We take it incredibly seriously, and um, we know we're doing this in the national interest. But uh, it's a heavy responsibility to be able to just create money like that. Philip Lowe, Governor of the RBA, fielding questions from the National Press Club of Australia back on the 3rd of February 2021. Uh, we'll just... Uh, the clarity, we're not involved in modern monetary theory, which is the central bank directly financing the government. We don't do that. We will not do that. It's not on our radar screen. So you may have heard me before say modern monetary theory, there's not much monetary, not much modern, not much theory in it. But um... First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. <laughs> So modern monetary theory, or MMT, is that school of economic thought that looks at institutional practice and tells us how (laughs) the federal government spends. Now, last week, Anne, we were talking about how the the coalition has abandoned its, what would you say, its position of running balanced budgets and surpluses, and it now um, regards itself as a a government that has embraced fiscal spending. That spends, yes. We're, we're trying to explain what a seismic shift this is in the way that the coalition government and orthodox economists are handling the economy. Because remember when this government under Tony Abbott first came in, the massive catch cry was debt and deficit, we've got to live within our means. Mm. And now that's all been abandoned by the same government. I guess triggered by the COVID pandemic lockdowns where they just had to spend. So I think history overtook them. And what it showed was that um, spending is a good thing, not a bad thing. And if you don't do it, the economy will collapse. Mm. So it's the exact opposite rhetoric of what they've been saying before. Mm. The government doesn't contribute to the economy adequately. The economy will fail. Exactly. Now, we use the word debt and deficit and 
you and I have had this conversation, we need to abandon those words. It's not debt and deficit. It's a government contribution, a necessary government contribution to the economy to stop it from failing. It's a necessary supply of dollars to have an economy. (laughs) If they didn't supply the dollars, we wouldn't have an economy. Yeah. You know, so why we're talking about this as a big shift is because there's been this decades-long debate about when to use monetary policy and when to use fiscal policy. So if we just remind Larry and Larissa that monetary policy is mostly about adjusting interest rates and the institution that does that is the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBA, which is Australia's central bank. And then fiscal policy is the government's ability to create money when it spends. So the Australian federal government is the issuer of Australian dollars. No one else can do it, otherwise that's called counterfeiting. The dollars are not like gold in the ground where there's a finite amount. You can never run out of dollars because the dollars these days, they're numbers in a computer. Uh, So the Australian government does not need to tax in order to get the dollars. It doesn't need to tax anyone. (laughs) It doesn't need to borrow from anyone to get the dollars. What actually happens is that the Australian government creates new money when it spends. And that spending is a very formalised, restricted process and it can only happen when Parliament agrees to spend money on something and then it instructs the Treasury and the Central Bank to put the right numbers into the right bank accounts. So, of course, that begs the question, why would the federal government do something like selling bonds? And often in the mainstream that's talked about as borrowing And so people look upon selling bonds as borrowing because when you sell a bond, essentially you're taking someone's money now and then you're giving it back to them in the future with a little bit more money on top. So it looks like borrowing and it is a kind of borrowing when the state governments do it. But surely the federal government is not borrowing Australian dollars. Well, it's an odd sort of situation because the Australian federal government is actually legally obliged to borrow whatever amount of money is in excess of tax revenue. And this is a rule known as the full funding rule. And it's a sort of neoliberal idea that's been put into institutional practice. And the people in charge of selling these bonds, they are a subset of the central bank of the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBA, and they are known as the Australian Office of Financial Management. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So the settings politically have been that the Conservatives hate fiscal spending. They think that the economy should be driven by the private sector and that government should get out of the way and only become involved in the economy in in Mm. a minimal capacity, which is uh, law and order and defence. And everything else should be run by the markets and that the government should just stay out of the way. Well, they've abandoned that policy. Yeah, for years they've been telling us that the government can't spend because that will create inflation. And now we're seeing that that's not necessarily the case. Really, the purpose that the not spending enough was serving was it was shifting spending into the private sector. So it was shifting it out of the public sector where decisions get made for the public good. And it was shifting the spending decisions into the private sector, which really the spending decisions are made in the interests of profit. Greed. (laughs) So this is why we're so interested in who is spending and when. And the emphasis under the conservative neoliberal regime that we've been living under for decades is to make rich people richer and making poor people poorer Mm -hmm. under their model, which... Seems to run out of steam. Mm. And that's what we're talking about this week, isn't it, Anne? Monetary policy and how it can't be the only tool to run an economy. And what's really interesting about what's going on with this debate, at least I think it's pretty good entertainment, is that given that it has been the central bank, the RBA, who has implemented this monetary policy, now that we're seeing so clearly that monetary policy alone doesn't work... All the uh, economists and pundits and commentators, they're all coming out of the woodwork and blaming the RBA for not doing monetary policy correctly. They don't understand that the system isn't working. They think that it just needs some tweaking or that somebody has done something wrong Mm. rather than that it's a fundamentally flawed system to start off with. It's very interesting times and poor old Philip Lowe, the governor of the RBA, is feeling the heat. Oh, well, you know. (laughs) 
You didn't have to take the job. <laughs> You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio. So in this show, we'll hear from two people who think about what the RBA does when it's adjusting interest rates and it sometimes does that by buying and selling bonds. Who, who have you got for us, Anne? Who, who are we listening to this week? We have Avis Williamson, who I have met through the online Modern Monetary Theory community. And she has worked as a business systems analyst. So she had a really unique perspective. Right. Then later we'll hear from Professor Martin Watts, who is a modern monetary theory economist. Yeah, we like Martin. He's, he's got that very uh, professoral tone. He certainly brings a professorial tone to the show, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He knows what he's talking about. He's, um, he's pretty switched on. So it's always good to hear from him. So... We'll hear from Avis first, and we will hear her mention Stephanie Kelton, who is an American MMT economist, and she wrote the book The Deficit Myth. Well, The Deficit Myth is certainly a very relevant book right at this time, isn't it? Mm. All this talk about deficits and people freaking out, she just busts that wide open and, and tells you, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Exactly. So let's have a listen to how a business systems analyst might point out that the emperor has no clothes. I'm speaking with one of the members of what I think of as the extended MMT community online, and that is Avis Williamson. Welcome to the show, Avis. Thanks. Do tell us your MMT story, how you came to it and why you're interested enough to be talking about it online. How I came into it was quite interesting. A friend and I went down to Sydney to listen to Stephanie Colton. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty impressed by her ability to think very clearly and to express very clearly her understanding of how systems work. And that got me into starting to look at some more. My background is basically in business management systems. And so processes always get me. Mm. I've developed processes for all kinds of business activities, everything from rail to road to distribution to production. So the fact that what Stephanie was talking about was very process-orientated grabbed my attention immediately. Tell me how you saw what she was saying as process-oriented. Many people wouldn't have that filter, I imagine. To do a successful process, to document a successful process... You need to know what the purpose of the process is, when you should apply it, who's going to apply it, how they're going to apply it, and what the outcomes are that they expect. And that's really what Stephanie was talking about, processes. Mm -hmm. And once I started to have a look at websites like the RBA and the Office of Financial Management, I recognised how awful their processes are. They haven't got a clue how to write one. <laughs> <laughs> so not even the economics, but just how they're constructing what they're doing. Yes, basically. When I went into the websites and had a look at, at what they say they do, I discovered they don't really know what they do. Mm -hmm. They describe, for example, how they offer the tender up for bond buying. The Office of Financial Management? Yes, yes. They're part of the RBA. And so they are responsible for selling the bonds that everyone thinks is funding government spending, but we all know is actually not doing that. They don't really know why they're doing it. They know when they're doing it and they know how they're doing it, but they don't really seem to know what the outcomes are, whether they've done it successfully or not. Mm. They choose on the basis of who is going for the lowest interest rate, which might well be zero, but they don't define what percentages they're looking for at, at any particular level of interest rate. And I found that really interesting because it's probably luck more than anything else. <laughs> this is an absolutely devastating critique. <laughs> If you want a, a process that achieves what you're setting out to do, you sure as heck don't rely on luck. So which part of it is luck 
Well, um, it may not be luck so much, but they don't describe how they do it. So if I was an investor, I'd be pretty reluctant to buy bonds because I don't really know what I'm going to get out of it. I might get the interest rate I nominate, but then again, it's unlikely I will. Mm-hmm. The only benefit a bond investor is actually getting is that they've got a guarantee of getting their money back. Right, because we know it's the currency issuer. <laughs> They're not necessarily going to get their preferred interest rate. Mm. And the spread goes across starting from the lowest up to the target cash rate. Mm. Certainly the Office of Financial Management would never get quality management system certification. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting to me is is it's become obvious that there must be some kind of institutional dissonance going on. Yes. Given that there's there's 40 people sitting in an office there doing something. They don't really know what they're doing. Somebody in there must understand it, but they appear to be incapable of writing the process on paper. And you're saying it's kind of like on the part of the Office of Financial Management because they don't know what the lowest bid's going to be until it happens. No. There's probably some kind of tacit agreement um, between bond investors and the Office of Financial Management, but that agreement about how you do things isn't really spelled out. I find it fascinating that it's not. You can't then go and measure whether you're achieving what it is you're setting out to do. Just crazy. <laughs> I don't really know what the heck's going on there, but I really think they don't either. Look, it must be totally frustrating not to actually understand what your job is. How do you live with it? When I've spent time working with people on, on a process, particularly practical people, and we talk about what they actually do, they sometimes are really surprised that it can be readily described. And they're often really surprised that an outcome can be identified and that outcome can be measured. But it's usually very satisfying for them to be able to measure the outcome and see what they've achieved. And so I reckon working in the Office of Financial Management and the RBA would probably be the most frustrating job ever. <laughs> <laughs> like, how can you go home and say, gee, I, I know what I did today? <laughs> like, you can't. <laughs> I think a lot of MMT people have a sense of the absurdity, but yeah. I don't know that any of us have looked really closely at what that must be like in an operational sense. Most people actually really understand their job and know what it is they're looking to achieve. I haven't really met anybody, I think, in the whole years I've been working on systems like this that doesn't really understand what it is they're trying to achieve. So if we sent you in there, we might find all sorts of sob stories. <laughs> I reckon. I'd be playing mother and nursemaid a fair bit, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> so is this an unusual omission? It's a common omission in a lot of businesses that they haven't figured out how they're going to measure whether what they're doing achieves the goal that they're looking for. And they're applied to lots of different things, particularly in production of, of goods and services and particularly in stuff like road maintenance or train operations. Mm. You know, they're not the only ones. Lots of businesses don't want to measure what they do and see if they're achieving their goal. It's relatively easy to measure your success, provided you keep it numerical. Mm. It's pretty easy, really. It's not rocket science. A lot of people say to me, oh, yeah, well, we're pretty good. But when I say how good's pretty good, they haven't got any idea. 
pretty good doesn't tell me a damn thing. <laughs> if they can say, well, we achieved 98% of our targets over X period, then I can say, okay, yeah, you are pretty good. How do you do it? So with an MMT perspective on all of this, my immediate reaction is that this sort of lack of self-reflection serves a purpose. <laughs> I think it probably does. So I suspect you're right that it's um, not wanting to know because um, once you know when you find a problem, you then have to deal with the problem. Right. If you're working in somewhere like rail operations and you make a collection of fairly minor mistakes, it can have pretty disastrous outcomes. And I guess I really learned then to ask questions. Hmm. And that was largely a safety issue, a public safety issue as much as a personal safety issue. But surely handling the country's dollars and cents, whether it's on a spreadsheet or whether it's the real thing, you know, that's pretty much a public safety issue to me too. So if you think about the purpose of the Office of Financial Management, it seems to me like their whole purpose is couched within an absurdity, which is this idea of full funding. Yeah, I think so. In fact, I'm damn sure it is. Probably what really needs to happen from a quality perspective is they really need to look at the way they the whole organisation is structured, and I'm talking here about RBA as well, mm. and say, does our structure achieve the outcomes we're looking for? And the thing is, if you're given an absurd directive to start with, <laughs> where are you <laughs> going to go with even looking at the quality of the process? Like you're just going to end up in crazy land. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot they could do to sort it out, but I suspect they probably don't want to because then they'll have to be upfront about what they're doing. Right. And that really becomes a thorny political, ideological issue. It doesn't have to be a political issue for them, but it's certainly an ideological issue. I'm quite sure of that. The framing of their understanding is all wrong. To me, they don't really know if they're achieving anything, let alone what it is they're achieving. And so you have a bunch of people who say, yeah, we've got to get this money in because the government needs the money. But the reality is that's bullshit. <laughs> that's actually not the purpose of bond issue anyway. Really, they've got to get the money in because the investors make the money out of it. But they also invest in something they know will give them a guaranteed return. Whether it's a zero interest return or not isn't really relevant. They're always going to get it back. And it's a convenient place to put money when there's no demand for it. We're lifting the lid here on the can of worms. <laughs> it's a huge can of worms. That's why I say it's ideological. The way they frame what they're doing is actually not appropriate and not accurate. Right. Their frame is, oh, it's a neoclassical, isn't it? Um, money comes from us so the government can spend it. But I haven't really noticed my signature on any of the banknotes I've got. <laughs> and if it is there, I'd better start worrying. <laughs> Who knows what you're doing in your sleep there, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I do talk in my sleep, so. <laughs> I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3 CR. CR. What is it about MMT that you would like the average person to know who really doesn't want to dig into the details of how the Office of Financial Management works? Really, I think um, we've spent 40 or 50 years of tagging 
every comment with taxpayers' dollar, and we have to drop that tag because it's not true. Taxpayers don't sign dollar bills. The government doesn't have to tax us in order to spend. And and what I tend to say to people who say, no, 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 taxpayers' money, if that's the case, you better check your notes because if it's my signature on them, they're frauds. I didn't sign them. <laughs> and so I'd really like them to actually have a look at what's written on a dollar note. Well, it's not a dollar note now anymore, is it? It's a five or a ten or a fifty or whatever. I'd really actually like them to have a look at what's written on that dollar note. It sure as hell doesn't say Avis Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you never paid taxes, Avis. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have once or twice, damn it. Um, just to understand where the money comes from, it frees your ideas about what could happen. Mm. So really, that's the key, I think, understanding that the money comes from the governing authorities who have the legal authority to create it and spend it as they see fit. But there's a whole lot we could be doing that that would change the way we operate, the way we manage our lives and our environment. And um, if we could just start to think that that's possible Mm. by understanding where money comes from, And I don't care whether people understand that a small percentage of it is in coins and notes and a huge percentage of it is in a spreadsheet. I don't really care about that. I just want them to understand that the governing body has the legal authority to create and make available the money. Then people can go on further or they can just stop there. And when we say create or make available the money, there's no limit on that ability. Yeah. I kind of had those suspicions for a long time. Back in the early 80s, I was actually working as the union delegate representative for my polytech in New Zealand, and I heard the garbage that Roger Douglas was putting forward and and I'm calling it garbage. I knew gut instinct that it was garbage, and I didn't have much understanding of economics, either micro or macro, so I decided I'd better do something about that. So I did a couple of papers at university, and that at least gave me enough understanding of the terminology that I could challenge those politicians with some degree of understanding. Mm. Gut instinct was telling me that those ideas coming from Roger Douglas, which were really neoclassical economic theory, were all to hell. And and I really didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And listening to Stephanie, it was a huge relief for me when I figured that my gut instinct had been dead right and now I've got the information to back it up. Mm. That's a fairly, that's a good feeling. We question whether our gut instinct is right or not, but I've found it, it always is. Sometimes we just don't know why. Mm. So once I put together that, um, what Stephanie was saying with some of the things that happened both here and in New Zealand, I started to understand that neither Central Bank and their little bits of affiliate, like the Office of Financial Management, actually think operationally. They don't think in operational terms. And that's why they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) It's not really hard. It's really pretty simple. It's a bit like cooking dinner. (laughs) I've actually said to a lot of civil engineers in my time, thank God you don't cook my dinner. Because you wouldn't know what you were aiming to cook, what ingredients you needed and where you'd go and shop for them. 
and what it looked like when it was cooked. Yeah, how you'd know when it was cooked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I suspect that if I was in the Office of Financial Management, I'd be saying the same thing to them. Wonderful, Avis. <laughs> Thanks so much, Avis, for uh, speaking with me. It's been absolutely enlightening and enjoyable. It's been enjoyable for me too. Thank you. I guess the point of all that is that once you realise that the selling and buying of bonds has got nothing to do with funding the government spending, then you have to admit it's got something to do with the relationship between bond investors and the Australian Office of Financial Management. And in fact, what you might find is that buying and selling of bonds has got everything to do with giving easy money to large financial institutions. Because essentially, the currency issuer, our government, is guaranteeing them a return on their money. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. So, Kevin, we heard Avis mention... Roger Douglas there, and he apparently was the New Zealand Minister of Finance who implemented a pretty harsh version of neoliberal policies Uh, of austerity in New Zealand. I was wondering who he was because you referred to him and I, I, I didn't know who he was. Yeah, so I looked him up and he has bequeathed his name and there's such a thing as Roger Nomics. Roger Nomics, yeah. Yeah. It's like the evil younger brother of Reaganomics. So Rogernomics, is that is that where when you follow his policies, yeah, you get Rogered? <laughs> I think it's this interesting brand of economic theory by which one can indeed be badly Rogered by Roger Economics. <laughs> Thanks for that, Roger. You're a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Avis was terrific. She's very pragmatic. She seems just very cut and dry. And she seems to be able to analyse the system and say, well, if it's not working, why isn't it working? And when she applies it to some of the institutions that we just take for granted, you just sit there and go, Mm. oh, my God. Exactly. I can see how it would be really enlightening for New Zealanders using the MMT lens to look back at how their economy was shredded by Roger. I get the thing with gut feeling and the rest of it, but, but I don't. I don't trust gut feeling and I don't trust my eyesight. Uh, so it, it, it's <laughs> like just because cause I wear glasses and everything's curved because of the lenses and my glasses, my brain has to adjust. Uh-huh. And also with gut instinct, like you feel it and you go, yeah, I, I feel it. But, but then I always want to verify it. I always want to double check, mm. which is always nice when you're, when you do verify your gut instinct and it turns out to be that your gut instinct was correct. That's, that's very reassuring. Mm. But we've got to use all our faculties in this, including our MMT lens. True. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au So let's hear from Professor Martin Watts, Emeritus Professor at the University of Newcastle. And he will talk more about this monetary policy and this fiscal policy and how there's not much monetary policy stuff you can do when you are nearly at zero on your interest rates and you can't cut your interest rates any further. So people have sensed that weakness in the RBA. Welcome back to the show, Martin. Well, thank you very much for having me. What prompted uh, this conversation was a couple of articles that I came across in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, which looked like they were led by senior economics correspondent Shane Wright. And they published what they're calling a special series on the Reserve Bank, monetary policy and the state of the economy, published around April the 6th, 
2021. And that was under the headline, The Central Bank Under Fire. Has the RBA failed Australians? They're saying the bank, meaning the RBA, is now facing rare criticisms by leading economists, former treasurers and monetary policy experts who believe the bank has failed the country by holding interest rates too high for too long ahead of the pandemic. And they go on to say some experts even believe Bank Governor Philip Lowe should resign and the RBA board be overhauled. Just to give everyone a sense of how scathing this criticism is, uh, they quote Stephen Hamilton, who is Chief Economist with Blueprint Institute. And he says, If one of my employees had failed to achieve his KPI for half a decade, I would long since have sacked him. Any excuse he had might be credible if Lowe had actually tried. I feel like I'm watching like a pack of starving dogs and they've sensed a weakness in one of their own. You know, they can smell blood. Now they're circling. (laughs) Now I've gotten used to thinking, Martin, that it's heterodox economists like yourself who usually go gunning for the RBA. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like at the moment what we're seeing is an attack from their fellow orthodox economists. Am I using my MMT lens correctly to see this as like the community of orthodox economists looking for a scapegoat rather than looking to the failings of their own models? Well, I think you're right. Um, I think the starting point is to say, well, what's the Reserve Bank supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. And its chart is very clear. Essentially, moderate inflation, full employment and sort of long-term economic well-being of the population. If we look at the issue of inflation, there is a band of 2 to 3%. Since about 2014, interest rate policy by the Reserve Bank has not achieved the rate of inflation within that band. Secondly, we haven't had full employment. And thirdly, really, we've had very poor wage growth. Back in about 2011, the wage price index, which is a sort of clean measure of wages, was growing about 3.9% a year. And in the December quarter last year, the annual growth was 1.4%. So in purely factual terms, the Reserve Bank is not doing very well. Mm -hmm. The question then is, Is this purely a consequence of the Reserve Bank engaging in monetary policy by setting a target rate at the wrong level? So is it purely, if you like, Reserve Bank incompetence? Mm. A more sophisticated question is, is the Reserve Bank part of an essentially incoherent policy framework? Mm. So they have a particular role within macroeconomic policy in Australia and arguably the expectations and what they can achieve are naive and from an MMT point of view, uh, simply incorrect. So you mentioned that there's some truth to the accusation, but also that there is the deeper question. So could you put Phil and the rest of us out of our misery and just explain explain just exactly this ability by the RBA to adjust interest rates? What does that have to do with inflation and with wages growth? Well, the policy rate or the cash rate that the RBA sets on a monthly basis really sets the general structure of interest rates in the economy. And the argument is that if the rate is increased, then that filters through to the other rates, and this deters borrowing and spending, and generally subdues the macroeconomy and reduces inflation. Right. The Reserve Bank... They have long memories in terms of the high rates of inflation in the 70s with the oil price shocks and in the 80s. So a charitable interpretation of what they've been doing is 
putting the priority of low inflation at the front. So there have been various criticisms in the articles you mentioned by economists saying they've kept rates too high for too long. So we would agree then on the description of the state of the economy, which is not doing too well on all of those indicators that you just mentioned. So from the MMT perspective, we're in agreement on describing the problem, but then... But we've got to get the policy framework right. Mm. The underlying policy framework, which is now looking somewhat in tatters, (laughs) is very liberal in inspiration, and that is that free markets plus flexible wages will give rise to an economy which essentially spends most of its time at full employment, which is uh, referred to as the Nehru, and monetary policy has a role if inflation is too high, and in extreme circumstances, fiscal policy has a role. But monetary policy is the main policy game. Mm -hmm. Heterodox economists in general would argue that the notion that the free market economy is going to achieve full employment is a nonsense, and Keynes made this very clear a very long time ago. So the starting point of a heterodox economist's interpretation of how the economy functions is the importance of effective demand. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a gentleman called Tinbergen years ago who said, you need as many policy instruments, instrument being like monetary policy or fiscal policy, as you have targets. So there's a policy challenge even if the Reserve Bank confines its energies to purely looking at unemployment and inflation as its targets when it's really got only one instrument. Mm -hmm. Now it gets worse because the Reserve Bank agreed in 2016 that they would direct their attention at financial stability and particularly house prices. So here we have another target and that target's not going to be addressed by regulation but by manipulating the interest rate. So there have been occasions when the Reserve Bank has not raised interest rates because of fears about householders being overcommitted in terms of mortgages. When I was reading that article, I did wonder why they were talking about housing prices, and I hadn't realised that had become part of the RBA's remit. Trying to get the interest rate to um, achieve full employment, 2 to 3% inflation, um, the housing market not going completely out of control, it's simply impossible. Mm-hmm. So I see the, the main issue is policy incoherence. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio. You know, in this article, Blueprint Institute Chief Economist Stephen Hamilton, he was even criticising Philip Lowe for frequently commenting on political questions that are well outside his wheelhouse. Apparently, Philip's a little bit too vocal for his taste. (laughs) I think Lowe's been wrapped over the knuckles once or twice (laughs) for making statements. And he would be probably one of the more most outspoken governors. But I think it signifies Lowe's frustration. Mm. The idea that simply getting rates down to close to zero is going to essentially fix the economy. Mm. When you've got this political nonsense going on that's the coalition of well we're going to show ourselves as responsible economic managers because we're actually going to achieve a surplus Mm -hmm. there is clearly a tension between uh, philip lowe the reserve bank governor and treasury for some years philip lowe and the governor of the bank of england both saying they can't do all the heavy lifting and that there was a need for fiscal policy to step up. Okay, so that's code. So when when we read in the newspapers a governor of a central bank saying, we can't do all the heavy lifting, that's speaking to the treasurer and saying, hello, guys, can you help out here with your ability to do fiscal spending? Exactly. One of MMT's 
fundamental arguments which underpins the importance of fiscal policy arises from so-called sectoral balances where you can show that most economies most of the time in order to achieve full employment are going to have to run deficits mm-hmm. you know we had Wayne Swan trying to get a surplus which he failed because tax revenue was growing so slowly because wages were going so slowly and we've had the coalition ardently moving towards a surplus which of course was then scuttled by the covid crisis mm-hmm. they did recognize the need for fiscal stimulus with job seeker and job keeper and the others so if you're going to point the finger it wouldn't be so much at the rba governor philip lowe it would be more likely to be at josh frydenberg as the treasurer <laughs> and the other treasurers who've tried to run surpluses well absolutely yes I think many economists, many heterodox economists, just don't believe monetary policy is capable of influencing inflation and employment stroke growth in a predictable way. And we should be using fiscal policy to affect economic activity, but also via a job guarantee, it can be used as a counter-inflation mechanism. Mm. That's very uh, central to modern monetary theory. I was wondering, am I right in thinking that RBA governors rarely give interviews? Um, Traditionally, Reserve Bank governors hold their tongues. And yet there he was back in February talking to the press club. I was wondering if he was doing that partly because he could see the whites of the eyes of the wolves coming at him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a general trend with central banks that they have become more forthcoming and informative about where they see policy going. It's referred to as forward guidance. So agents in the market, financiers or whoever, don't get a nasty shock when interest rates are increased. Mm -hmm. And this sounds appropriate, being transparent as to where you think the policy rate is going to go. It does enable market participants to uh, hedge. And the other problem is that you might find that circumstances change and you're sort of locked in, Mm. then have to say, well, sorry, you know, will uh, change policy. So there's been good reasons for the governors to be a bit tight-lipped and it's a bit of a no-win situation when you're the governor. You're damned if you speak and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> well, that's right, yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. And in fact, it was the same Stephen Hamilton, the Blueprint Institute chief economist, who said that the Treasurer should launch an independent review of the RBA and our monetary policy framework, ideally chaired by a foreign-based independent expert with intimate knowledge of the way foreign central banks operate. And I was wondering what you thought of that idea, Martin. Well, I think they should not focus specifically on the Reserve Bank, but conduct a review of what the appropriate macroeconomic policy framework should be. Mm. Because the track record after the immediate post-war period is very poor. We haven't had anything resembling full employment. They're not really taking that wider view that you're talking about. I mean, it's ludicrous to confine it to the central bank, Mm. unless you're a firm believer that the central bank and monetary policy are going to solve all the macroeconomic ills, Mm. which I don't believe in and never have and never will. They were also quoting uh, Paul Keating, our former prime minister, in this article, and he said, the failure of monetary policy was its failure to secure essentially real wage growth. So he's also kind of sticking the boot in here. <laughs> I just think, well, isn't this the same guy who as treasurer oversaw the ascent of monetary policy and the undermining of union power, which I think would have contributed to low wage growth? Well, absolutely. And 
he was treasurer when we had the recession we had to have and it was brought on by the fact that the raising of interest rates didn't have the desired macro effect and so they rose and rose and you know mortgage rates ended up around 17-18%. That is a very good example of the ineffectiveness of monetary policy. Mm -hmm. So I would leave the interest rate fixed. So you set it low and say, well, this is where it's going to stay. Mm. Essentially scrapping the discretionary use of monetary policy, that creates a very stable climate for decision-making. Makes very good sense. All right. So there is a role for the Reserve Bank in encouraging and supporting stability in the economy, but we can't blame them for everything. (laughs) They've got the role of ensuring the payments mechanism operates. So that's an important role. Mm. And you could have a central bank digital currency, so we all have accounts at the central bank. I don't know the Reserve Bank has shown great interest in that. And the Reserve Bank has never shown any interest in negative interest rates, whereas even the Bank of England is thinking about it. To me, that smacks of desperation. (laughs) It's the old orthodox adage, if the policy hasn't worked, then we need to try harder. Do more of it. I mean, Friedman used to say that about free markets. Yes, we can deregulate this market and that market. Oh, it hasn't worked? Well, we've got to try harder. Definition of insanity, Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do appreciate you coming on and giving us your view from the MMT perspective. And I'm reassured that I did have my MMT lens on correctly to start feeling a little bit sorry for Phil, even though he's no friend of MMT. Modern monetary theory, there's not much monetary, not much modern, not much theory in it. But But I do think he's getting paid the big bucks, like he gets over a million dollars a year to be the fall guy for for decades of neoliberal policy. (laughs) (laughs) Quite right, yes. So thank you once again, Martin, for coming on to the show. Well, thank you very much. So what what I'm learning from these conversations is if the Reserve Bank has to do everything through monetary policy, it means that the government should do as little as possible, which means everything comes down to free markets. Mm. And I think this plays into the conservative, the free market, the neoliberal ideology. Mm. And and what about the example of how we've got two things going in two different directions at the moment? We've got house prices going up, up and up. And how would you bring house prices down? Well, you'd raise interest rates. But then you've got inflation, which is below target. We want inflation to be sitting between 2 and 3% to put a forward lean on the economy. Right. It's been underperforming for about five, six, seven years now. It's running low. So we've got low wage growth, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to... Uh, to increase the inflation? Yeah. The, the theory is that you lower interest rates. Lower interest rates and that will stimulate activity. Mm. Well, what we're doing is we're... We're lowering it. Well, interest rates got nowhere to go, which means house prices are out of control mm. and we've still got inflation below target. Yeah. It's incapable of doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, so poor old Phil was being asked to raise interest rates and to lower interest rates at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> and now they're blaming him for not doing that. And then he gets blamed for not doing the right thing. <laughs> it's great. Who knew that the world of macroeconomics would be so entertaining? I bet you Philip Lowe doesn't think it's that entertaining. <laughs> Did you say he gets paid over a million dollars a year? Yeah, he does. He's one of the highest paid central bankers in the world, as it happens. I saw in that article. Yeah, I could wear a bit of flack for a million dollars a year. I'd I'd be happy to be in that conundrum for, (laughs) I don't know, four or five years, four or five million dollars for people to be screaming and yelling at me. They'll just quit and say, thank you very much. You sort it out. It'd be just water off a duck's back for you, wouldn't it? You just wave your million dollars at them and and keep on going. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not such a hard gig, maybe. wondering too, did you happen to pick up on how radical some of Martin's suggestions were regarding the central bank, the RBA? I must admit when I was talking to him, I just went, "Uh uh-huh, without really thinking about it. 
But Martin was saying there that the RBA should just set and forget the interest rate. Yeah. <laughs> and if you think about that the mystique of the RBA has been all about fiddling around with the interest rates, I mean, that's a total heresy. Yeah. <laughs> They'd be out of a job effectively. You just say, right, here's the rate, mm. and everybody go away. I think you mentioned something also about everybody having an account with the RBA, which is basically talking about nationalising the banks, which got Curtin and Chifley into a bit of trouble back in the uh, in the 40s. Mm. That's what led to their demise post-World War II and, and started the Menzies era. So you've got to be careful having those conversations. Oh, okay. So Martin's a bit of a radical there. And, in fact, I would want to make the distinction between offering a public banking option and nationalising the banks. So if you nationalise the banks, I think what that really means is that you're saying you can't have commercial banks anymore, that all the banks have to be owned by the government. Mm -hmm. But if you offer a public banking option, which is basically saying you can have accounts at the RBA, yeah. <laughs> that would effectively act as a minimum set of standards for the services that people would get from banks. It's like a benchmark. Mm. And so then they would have a choice not to go with the commercial banks, even though the commercial banks might still exist. Yeah, and you always get that argument that, especially from the neoliberals, that the government shouldn't enter that space because then they're providing unfair competition to commercial operations. Instead of making the commercial operations fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I say screw that because you commercial guys are just a bunch of crooks anyway. <laughs> As the Banking Royal Commission showed, you can't trust them. You, you need them to peg them for something. Exactly. So there's vested interests that don't want to see us all have accounts at the RBA. Yeah. <laughs> but this whole thing about the RBA, and mm. it's always important to remember what their charter is, and it was good to be reminded of uh, that by Martin, is that they have a target rate of inflation that needs to be set at around 2 or 3% to put a forward lean on the economy. And there's good reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, they talk about full employment. Mm -hmm. And as you and I have discussed, full employment means that anybody who wants a job has a job mm. and has enough of that job. So when we factor in underemployment with unemployment, mm. we're talking about an unemployment rate of about 10%, 10 underutilisation of labour, which is the theme song of, it, of this show mm. by UB40 is I am the one in 10. Well, we're basically still at that rate. And when we hear labour acting like they're being very progressive talking about a 3% unemployment rate, that's still not full employment. No. And I heard a really good definition of full employment the other day, which is that there are more jobs advertised than people looking for work. That's also another way of knowing that you're at full employment. And that was the case uh, very much back in the 50s and the 60s where you could always find work. It mightn't be the ideal work that you wanted, it mightn't be the, your dream job, but mm. you could do a job while you're looking for your dream job uh, and that's a nice place to be in as opposed to you know, not being able to afford to pay the rent. Mm. So that was the second thing with the RBA was you've got this target rate of inflation at 2 or 3%, uh, full employment. And, and the third thing is this very general thing about just the general well-being of the economy, you know, which is um, pretty open-ended and, and kind of soft and lovely. But that's part of their, their charter as well. I guess they should be watching out to make sure there isn't a crisis brewing, you know, like a 2008 GFC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and this whole idea of, of what's lovely for the economy – this seems to become more and more exclusive now. They go, it's lovely if you can afford to buy your house. It's lovely if you can afford to pay the rent. It's lovely if you can afford to buy a house and buy an investment property and rent it out to somebody else. <laughs> and, they, and they forget about all the other people, right? So this group of, of who the economy is working for seems to be becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, that's a real problem, yeah. I think you need to rewrite the charter, Kevin. We're going to say that the RBA should be ensuring there's a lovely economy for everyone. A lovely economy, according to Kev. Yes, I'd love that job. That would be good. And if you could pay me a million bucks a year, I'd really do it. But <laughs> you pay me nothing and I'd still do it. That'd be a great job. I tell you what, Kevin, if the RBA ever wanted to become a force for good, I reckon they could do worse than call up Avis. If we had Avis running the RBA, this place would be whipped into shape in about three months flat. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> It's been another great show. Uh, you've done the heavy lifting yet again, and you go and find these uh, marvelous people to interview and extract important information from their from their minds. <laughs> and, and it certainly helped back up the show that we did last week. Um, mm -hmm. We've got to keep on reminding Larry and Larissa the significance of this fundamental shift. Mm. A conservative government, and it could probably only be done by a conservative government, because imagine if the Labor government went on this fiscal spending spree like they did during the GFC to a much smaller extent, and they just copped it sideways from the Conservative government. Right. But when a Conservative government does what they will criticise 
a slightly more progressive government are doing, you, you can institute change. So I wonder if this is the beginning of, of, a, of a brave new world where governments embrace fiscal spending, don't care about deficits, and, and uh, <laughs> we're going to start addressing issue after issue. But uh, but I started ranting again. Well, that's all about what they spend on. So that, that would be my final piece of advice to Larry and Larissa is just watch where they're spending. Yes. Not the amount of spending, but are they funding more coal-fired power plants or are they doing something we would rather see? We're well, seeing homeless people housed. Mm. So it's, it's marvellous to be uh, fiscally spending and injecting money into the economy. Who benefits from that? That's the question. But um, that's a question we will always endeavour to uh, discuss on these shows, Anne. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, We've run out of time this week and we'll need to continue this conversation at the next show. Mm, I think we need to exit stage left here. See you later, Anne. Bye. We'll see you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. No, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I said... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.